at Azusa-Pacific University. Would you please welcome my dear friend. Love you to death, man. Thank you. Kim Thank Walkenmeyer. you. Thank you, right. Larry. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to worship with you and to be here with Larry and Shirley. As he mentioned, my goodness, we go back so far, and I was such a kid. You guys were kids, too, when we first met. God's done amazing things. We give him the glory for that. And, of course, marrying Kim was the best decision I made other than following Christ. I, I told some folks last night, I, I, I really think this is true. I think I met Dave and Faye, you know, after you, after you, you got to meet the, the, the parents. I think, I think the weekend I met them, I asked Kim to marry me. I think it was that. Once I met them, you know them, you know. I said, my goodness, why wait any longer? Let's get married. So, great, uh, great family to be a part of. I married up, right, men? Don't we all men marry up? Yeah. And, and I, finished, I finished college in Kansas, and I called Larry and Shirley, and I said, I, I want to, can I come work with you? And they were at East Whittier Friends, and they said, sure, come on out. So we had three years together there. I learned so much. Larry taught me so much. I'm so grateful. And after a year or so there, the church invited me to uh, move into a house that the church owned right next door to the church, just a small little house, old house, right next to the church. And uh, it was a part of my compensation to live there rent-free in this little house that the church owned. And it was, it was a great bachelor pad. I lived there with another master's degree student, a friend of mine, and I had everything I need. How many of you guys remember living in a bachelor pad? Or, or some of you still living in a bachelor pad? <laughs> it was a great bachelor pad. I had everything I need. I had a bed and a TV and a couch. And then I had a bunch of milk crates, right? And so you don't need a TV stand. I had milk crates. I didn't need a dresser. I had milk crates. I didn't need a nightstand. I had milk crates. Dirty clothes? No, they went on the floor. But one day this, this woman came into my house and rearranged my furniture, redecorated my house. Out went my milk crates, out into the garage. And she brought in a TV stand, nightstand, and a dresser. How are you supposed to see your stuff when it's in drawers? <laughs> and then she put curtains around the windows. Curtains. I didn't need curtains. I had pull-down blinds. But worst, she brought plants into my house. Plants. Now, look, I'm a farmer. We plow plants with tractors. We don't bring them into the house. <laughs> plants. And then, and then she put them on stands made for plants. Did you know they made stands for plants? Called plant stands. And, and she covered them with these little cloths and doilies. Doilies. My my milk crates are in the garage, replaced by doilies. All because on a Saturday afternoon, before family and friends, we exchanged rings, exchanged vows, 
and committed our lives to each other in the covenant relationship of marriage. In a covenant relationship, all that I had is now hers, and all that she had is now mine. That's a covenant relationship. And when we get into trouble in our marriage, it's because one of us is struggling to give the other person authority, to give the other person permission in our lives. And when I struggle in my relationship with God, it's because I'm, I'm struggling, I'm resistant to give God authority. And so here's my question. Have you given God permission to rearrange your furniture? Have you given God permission today to come into your life and reorder things, rearrange things, send out the milk crates, and bring in whatever it is he wants to bring in. What kind of relationship do you have with God today? He invites us, see God invites us into a covenant relationship with him, a covenant relationship in which we surrender all that we are and all that we have to him. And it's, it's the best, some of you know this, it's the best kind of life you can ever live. It really is to let God rearrange your furniture, to let God come in and say, I know what's best for you, and I can change things so that you can live life the way I've designed it to be lived. Jesus one time entered a house and rearranged the furniture, and the supposed owners of that house were very unhappy, very upset. The passage is in Mark chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11 or turn there on your phones or your iPads or whatever you have, find Mark chapter 11. It's a story of the rearranging of furniture, Jesus rearranging furniture. And the question that was asked of Jesus at the end of the passage we're going to read is, is in 28, and this is the last verse we'll read together. And they came to Jesus, they said, Jesus, what gives? What gives? Who gave you permission? Who gave you authority to do this? By what authority do you come into our house and rearrange our furniture? It's a question of authority. Who has the authority to rearrange your furniture? I'm going to invite you to, uh, to stand with me, and I'll read, and I'm going to read you the story. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to read the story that leads to this question. This question that's on the screen is the last question of the passage. But I'm going to start with verse 12, Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Before I read, I just want to invite you in the quietness of your heart to pray this simple prayer. Lord, here I am, speak to me. Would you just, in the quietness of your heart, in your own words, Lord, here I am, speak to me. Lord, we're here. We're your people. We invite you to come in and rearrange our furniture and say what you need to say and do what you need to do. It's yours. We give you permission. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Remember that. Nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began 
This is where he rearranges the furniture. Jesus began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And then verse 22, there's some great teaching here on prayer that I don't have time to get into today, but maybe you can spend some time meditating on it and studying it later today. Verse 22, listen to the the teaching of Jesus on prayer. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Verse 27, they arrived again at Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? You can be seated. A little bit of history is in order here to help us understand the temple and why Jesus would enter the temple and do this very strange thing. Why did Jesus come in and rearrange the furniture? Well, the the temple was first built, the first temple was built about a thousand years before Christ by King Solomon. And among other things, the one of the purposes of the temple was to be the primary place of worship for the people of Israel. And the primary form of worship for the people of Israel and Jesus before Jesus' day was to bring a sacrifice, an offering to God as an act of worship. That's how you worship the Lord. The book of Leviticus outlines a whole series of sacrifices Now, we understand, some of us, if we've grown up in the church, we've heard about the sacrificial system and how people brought animals to sacrifice for their sins, which is true. But part of the sacrifices were not just for sins, but they were for the giving of thanksgiving and worship and praise to God. So you brought sacrifices to God at the temple to ask forgiveness, but you also brought sacrifices to say, God, I love you, I worship you, I praise you, I thank you. That's how you worshiped God. And the important feature about the the sacrifices that you brought to the Lord is that they needed to be the first and the best of what you had. If you were a farmer, you went out into the fields and you brought the first fruits of your harvest to God. If you were a a herdsman, you went out into your herds and your flocks of, of sheep and goats and cattle and you brought to God the firstborn, 
the best from your herd. That was what was laid out. It was very clear. It was, it, was, it was an act of faith, an act of trust to say, God, I give to you the first and the best of what I have, trusting everything else, trusting that you'll take care of me with everything else. And so that was worship, to bring to God, to the temple, the best of what you had, whatever your livelihood, the first fruits of your harvest. Now, jump ahead to about uh, 400 B.C., about 600 years later, 400 years B.C., the last, one of the last books of the Bible written before Jesus is the book of Malachi. And, and listen to how this worship had deteriorated by the time of Malachi. God speaks to the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi in the book, chapter one of Malachi, and he says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And then you get the passion, you hear the passion, the frustration in God's heart. And he says, I wish, it's almost as if he says, I wish somebody would go out and get some chains and just chain the temple doors. I'd rather you not bring in sacrifices that are crippled and blind and lame. I'd rather you not enter my temple and light useless fires on the altar. And it says in Malachi, I am not pleased with you. What's going on? Well, it's very clear. They were going out into the fields and finding the easiest animals to catch to bring to God, not the best. They were, they were giving to God their leftovers. Instead of bringing to God the first and the best, they were, they were spending that on themselves, saving that for themselves. And then when it was time to go to worship, they were bringing to God their leftovers. Now what about us? Do we do the same thing today? Do we spend the first of our paychecks on our houses, our government, paying our taxes, our interests to, ma- to maintain our standard of living, and then give to God the leftovers, if we have any leftovers? And who has leftovers? Do our lives demonstrate that we give the first, the best of our time to the Lord? Or does it go to our jobs, to our kids' activities, and to our interests? And then God gets leftovers. And who has leftovers? Are we giving to God the first and the best of our lives? Or are we giving him our leftovers? The point is this, if we give God authority in our lives, he will reorder our priorities. If we invite him in to rearrange our furniture, he will reorder what what is important, what is of value in our lives. And it, it may seem that we want to resist that, but if we allow him to do it, it will make our lives so much better. We will live the way we were designed to live by our creator if we let God rearrange our furniture and reorder our priorities. Will you do that? Will you let God come into your life, take out what he wants, and reorder your priorities? Okay, back to the temple and a little bit of history. If we look at what was going on in Jesus' day, in the early years of the temple, as I mentioned, a thousand years earlier, they brought 
the first and their best from their crops and their herds to God as sacrifices. But by Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders and the local businessmen had arranged a practice so that, so that you could purchase your sacrifices right there in the temple court, in, in the court of the Gentiles, in fact. No need, to, no need to drag that lamb all the way from Galilee or wherever you live. Just show up. Just show up and purchase it right there. It made worship convenient. Worship became about convenient, not about sacrifice. It became a matter of, you know, don't, don't need to do anything hard, difficult. Just show up. We'll make it easy for you. Or something else that was going on uh, in that system that, that obviously frustrated Jesus, and that was that it was a very corrupt system. You see, when you showed up at the temple, and let's say that you brought your lamb, you drug your lamb or your bull all the way from Galilee to the temple to offer to sacrifice, well, well, one of the Jewish leaders at the temple would meet you, and they would have to stamp your animal or your sacrifice for approval. And they might not stamp your sacrifice for approval. But if you bought one of their animals, it would have been pre-approved for a fee, of course. And so they created this corrupt system to manipulate people. And and they they, they required a certain coinage, a certain currency, to come into the temple. Imagine if you showed up next Sunday morning and, and Larry was standing out there with a the table and he said, welcome, what are you here for? And you say, well, we're here to worship the Lord. We'd like to worship the Lord. And he said, great, do you have the proper currency? Do you have the proper payment? And it's, you'd say, well, I, I don't know. What do I need? And he said, oh, well, you have to have the, the right Canyon Hills Fringe Church currency. And you say, I, I don't have that. I just have American currency. He says, well, you can't use that here. But, Larry would say, I happen to have some Canyon Hills currency, and I'd be glad to exchange currency with you for a fee. That's, that's kind of a ridiculous story, but it's a little bit like what was going on in the temple. And it's here where we need to hear Jesus' words. When he came into that environment, he came into that system which was degrading worship, making worship convenient, not about sacrifice. It was corrupting people about you know, for business and profit. Jesus comes into that environment and he quotes from the Isaiah prophecy and the Jeremiah prophecy. And I put those passages in your, in your notes that you can look at when you go home. And he, and he quotes from those prophets and he says, this is not right. This place, this house, God's house is to be a place that is about prayer. And for the nations. He says it's to be a a place of prayer and for the nations, not a den of robbers. Now, a comment here about both of these statements, prayer and a place of nations. I mentioned earlier that that the the profiteers were set up in the court of Gentile, the court of the Gentiles. They had taken over the court of the Gentiles. God desired from the very beginning a place of worship for the outsider, for the Gentiles, for the foreigners. And, and they were invited right into the presence of the temple. Even as far back as Genesis, God called Abraham. He says, I want you to be my people, to be a blessing to others. It was always God's heart, always God's intent, to be a blessing to others, to the outsider. 
And so the court of the Gentiles was that place where the Gentiles, the outsiders, could come in and worship the Lord. But they had been pushed aside. They had been shoved out so that the profiteers and the corrupt Jewish leaders could make a profit. The the people were disobeying God's heart for the nations, for the outsiders. But the primary place, the primary business of the temple was to be about prayer. This was to be a place where people came and poured their hearts out to God, where they came and they gave the best and the first of of themselves to the Lord, where they worshiped the Lord. It was to be a, a place of prayer, and they had made it a place of business. There was business going on there, but it wasn't the right kind of business. They weren't doing business with God. And God has called us to do business with him. Prayer is the serious business of the church, of his people. And and so my second point is this. If we we invite God to come in and rearrange our furniture, he will restore our purpose. Now I apologize, those of you that are taking notes, I've got a couple of typos there, so you can just scratch out the wrong word and write the right word there. He, he will come in and restore our purpose. Are we about the primary purpose of the church, of being God's people, which is to pray and do business with God and have a heart for the outsiders, whether they're around the corner or around the world? Will we be people of prayer and have a heart for those around the corner and around the world? That's what God is calling us to today. I think if Jesus were to walk into most of our churches today, He would call us back to those same two purposes. Will you be a people of prayer? And will you have my heart, God would say, for the lost, for the people around the corner and around the world? Will you? I I must confess, and actually I'm glad that I don't know Canyon Hills that well, but I know that most churches, if you look at their schedule, they're very busy. There's events on every day of the week But the least attended meeting of the week will be the prayer meeting in most churches. I don't know what it's like here, but in most churches, you show up to the prayer meeting and there's a handful of people. What's that say about us? We're so busy as a church. We have so many programs, so many activities, but we'll find anything to do when it comes to prayer. I also know, again, I, I don't know about Canyon, but I know in most churches, when they announce that there's going to be a missionary or a special missions emphasis, people start looking for vacation opportunities. How can we get out of town? In most churches, the least attended weeks of the year are when they're going to talk about missions or God's heart for the nations. What about Canyon? Will you be a people of prayer? Will you commit to that as your first priority? If the building fell down, if you had no worship team, if you had no pastor or staff, would you be a people of prayer? And would you continue to have God's heart for the nations? I think that's that's what Jesus would say if he would walk among us today. And it's here where we want to examine the fig tree. It's a strange little story that I read about Jesus and the fig tree. And I, and I put a note in the commentary there. The, the fig tree represented Israel and the temple in particular. 
Jesus approached the fig tree hoping for fruit and found leaves. Jesus approached the temple hoping for prayer and authentic worship and found activity, busyness, corruption. Both of them looked beautiful on the outside. The fig tree looked like a fig tree was supposed to look. The temple looked like a temple was supposed to look on the outside. But neither were producing fruit. Neither were fulfilling the purpose that God had designed for it. We as a church, the churches, are, we're so concerned about our outward appearance. What, what do people in the community think of us? How do we look? What's our reputation? How large are we? And I think God would say, you know, you're worried about the leaves. You're worried about the structure. What about the heart? Are you concerned about being people of prayer and people with a heart? For the nations. I, I know we're in your Belinda. I mean, this is this is the center of being concerned about outward appearances. It is. We know that. And that's infiltrated our churches. And so our churches sometimes get so consumed about the activities and the outward appearances. And God would walk our center aisle this morning and say, Will you be people of prayer? Let me call you back to your first purpose. You remember the time the man approached Jesus and said, Jesus, what are the first two commandments, the most important commandments? And you know these, some of you, if you grew up in the church. The first commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, be in an intimate relationship with God. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells a story about Good Samaritan to, to, to help us understand that the neighbor is the outsider. The neighbor is the one that... We don't normally love, the one that's difficult to love. God would say, I'm calling you back to those first two commandments. I'm calling you back to your first two purposes, to be in a relationship with me and to have a heart for your neighbor, for the outsider. Okay, back to the temple one more time. There was another problem. The temple was a very busy, busy place. I've already hinted at that. It was a busy place, and we are a busy people. Now, you have to understand, this was not the original temple that I, that I referred to earlier. This was, the temple in Jesus' day was Herod's temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. That temple was destroyed, and the Bible makes really clear that the reason the first temple was destroyed is because God's people were not faithful. The temple was destroyed by, by the Babylonians, and, and the scriptures tell us that the people saw the glory of God leave the temple. They saw the glory, some call it the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God's presence that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. They saw that leave the temple about 600 years before Jesus, and it had never returned. It was not there. They had not seen it return, even in Jesus' day. They were still waiting for it, even in Jesus' day. The glory of God had left the building. Also, in battle, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken. The Ark with the manna and Aaron's rod and the Ten Commandments, the tablets, all that had been taken away in battle, and it had never been found. Never, despite what Indiana Jones 
things. So, so do you get this? Do you get this picture? This is Herod's temple. Now, Herod's temple was, for, for the people in Jesus' day, the most beautiful, the most majestic, the most awe-inspiring building any of them had ever seen in their life. It took 60 years to build. It was still in construction by Jesus' day. 60 years to build. It was massive. It would be like, for most of those rural folks from Galilee, it would be like taking a, a, a native African from the jungle and dropping them into Las Vegas. It was overwhelming. In fact, two, two chapters later in Mark 13, the disciples make mention of how this building is huge and it's beautiful. So it's massive. Scholars tell us that tens of thousands of worshipers could enter and worship the Lord during a day. It was so huge. It was massive. So he had all these worshipers presenting their sacrifices, all this activity, all this busyness. And the Holy of Holies is empty. Empty. The ark is gone. The glory of God is not present. The thing that mattered most is not there. All of this activity, all this religiosity, all this sacrifice, all this business, and the one thing that matters most is not there. The glory of God is gone. But there's good news in this text. There's good news in this text. They had been waiting for the glory of God for 600 years. The people had been praying, hoping, expecting the glory of God to return to the temple. And there he was, standing right in the temple. The glory of God. Jesus is the fullness of of God's glory. The disciples just a few days earlier had seen the glory of God, the Shekinah cloud of glory descend on Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was the fullness of God's glory and now he stands in the temple. But Jesus declares that the era of the temple is over. He says this temple will be destroyed and it was physically just a few years later. But Jesus says, the temple will be destroyed and I will raise it in three days. And scholars believe what he's doing there is he's telling them that he has come to replace the temple. He has become the place, the center of God worship. If you want to worship God, you now come to Jesus. If you want to meet God, instead of going to the temple, you now come to Jesus the person. Instead of bringing your sacrifices to Jesus, Jesus has become the sacrifice for sin. And if we're going to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, Romans says, Romans 12 says, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, no longer having to bring goats or lambs or whatever. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship. We bring ourselves to Jesus. Do you get this? The glory of God has returned in the person of Jesus. And, get this, the next time, the second time we see the glory of God descend on the temple is in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, the glory of God descends on every disciple, every follower of Jesus, and they become the temple. From that moment on, we are the temple 
in which God's Spirit dwells. We are the radiance of God's glory in our community and in our, in our world. We are those who are called to reflect God's image. If people want to meet God, where are they going to meet him? Through our lives, through our love, through our service. If we give God permission, he will restore his glory to his church, to his temple. We, his people, are his temple. And God wants to restore his glory to us, to his people. God will. Interesting, in Acts chapter 2, some of you know this question, or know this answer. When, when God's glory descended on the people, what were they doing? They were praying. They were praying. They were functioning according to God's purpose for them. They were being a people of prayer, and the, and the glory of God was restored. Also interesting in that passage how they immediately responded by being proclaimers of the gospel to every nation under the heavens. And if we give God permission to come in our lives and rearrange our furniture and reorder our priorities and, and, and restore our purpose, he will revive his glory in our midst. He will revive his glory in our hearts, in our lives, in our churches. We're called to that. So what will we do? What, what's our response? Will we, will you, will Canyon Hills Friends Church let God rearrange the furniture, throw out the milk crates, bring in whatever he wants? Will you let him reorder your priorities? Restore your purpose to be people of prayer with a heart for the nations? Will you let him revive his own glory I'm, I'm thrilled with this prayer, prayer vigil that you're uh, celebrating here in a, a few days. I think the end of this week. And I know you'll hear more about it during the announcements if you haven't already. But it's a, it's a practical way for you as Canyon Hills French Church to live this out, to apply this passage, to apply this message from Mark chapter 11, to become again a people of prayer. I'm encouraged by that. Now, you know that it doesn't stop with a prayer vigil. You know that prayer isn't limited to the four walls of a church. In fact, if the walls fell down, we would still be called to be people of prayer because it's not, you know, about the place anymore. It's about the people filled with God's spirit, the glory of God. Will you be people of prayer and for the nations? Would you pray with me? Lord, this church, this church family, this church body, is committing to something significant this week, to be people of prayer. As they pray 24 hours, as they restore the purpose to which they've been called. And I'm encouraged by that. Would you, would you inspire them? Would you catalyze them to be people committed to prayer and to be people with a heart for the nations, for the lost, those around the corner and around the world. I pray, Lord, your favor, your blessing, your glory in this place, on this congregation. I thank you for their light into the community and around the world. I thank you for their testimony. I thank you for their faith, their love. May they display your splendor to the entire world as they follow you faithfully. 
In Jesus' name, amen.